to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case. And I'm here uh, with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director here at Resonate Church. Hey, everybody. And so uh, we are jumping still back and forth, and we will continue to do that for a while between Kings and Chronicles. Mm-hmm. And um, and we are at the very, very end of David's life, and he's giving instructions uh, to Solomon. And, and some of them, they seem a little suspicious to yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> it kind of feels like David is like saving his dirty work for Solomon. He's like, these people who did bad things... I didn't do anything about it, but I want you as your first order of business to just take him out. It seems out of character for David to get somebody <laughs> else to do that. Yeah. Well, it does not seem out of character for David to not take action when he should about justice, though. <laughs> yeah. But it feels like Joab's run his usefulness to David and Shammai, uh, well, he made the promise they wouldn't do anything, so he'll need someone else to take care of it. Yeah. It just seems so, so unique. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. I just don't love David. <laughs> yeah. But there is a section in here where David speaks what is true to Solomon. Um, I love the importance he puts on this sort of covenant obedience. So we see kings and leaders neglected and everyone suffers when that happens. So David, David is looking back on his life probably and seeing that. And so he's encouraging Solomon to hold fast. But we know having read the whole story that Solomon is also going to fall, but we get to look towards this perfect King in Christ, the one who didn't and who did fulfill these words of David perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely the the words that are said are true and right. And a, a King that follows what God's commands are. Yes. They, they, they should have, they should thrive in their kingship, uh, but yeah, it's just going to be a struggle. So, um, but the words are still, True, but and, and and then we see David die, and mm-hmm. it feels uh, very anticlimactic compared to other stories. Like you, you read the end of, Saul, of Moses, and there's just all all this language used around Moses. Like he gets pretty much an amazing epitaph, um, but w- David's sort of kind of matter of fact. <laughs> yeah, it just is. It's a. It feels like a fairly abrupt ending. And we have spent so much time focusing on talking about thinking about following David's life story it's it's just kind of sad to see him go yep so but, abruptly but solomon's taking his throne and at the very beginning he takes care of uh, any sort of competition to that throne so adonijah who already kind of made a, a run at um taking the throne once uh is it's kind of doing that again with this whole uh a- the abishag um Kind of, kind of taking what ultimately would be passed down according to custom and culture to Solomon. Uh, Adonijah's going for, and uh, Solomon wants nothing. No, Solomon clearly seems to attempt, see this as an attempt to grab the throne, and decides to kill Adonijah in the process. Um, but he continues to do David's dirty work, takes care of Joab in mm-hmm. a pretty questionable way. Uh, Joab does does what Adonijah does, which is hold on to the horns of the altar. Uh, but home base is, must have changed this time around. And so there's no safety granted to Joab. Uh, and then Shammai is put on house arrest. Uh, but uh, as soon as he violates the rule of house arrest, Solomon takes care of him right away. So this is Solomon's kingship. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I think... It's interesting because we see a couple different times it talks about Solomon's kingdom being established. And I guess it's established because he's wiped out any sort of threat. Uh, But the last verse in this section, this chapter two, talks about how the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. But we don't hear about God establishing the kingdom here. We hear Solomon doing it. Um, So it just seems to me that we see from the beginning Solomon attempting to strengthen 
and establish his kingdom through his own power and rule and authority and not through submission to God. Yeah. And and to defend Solomon a bit, I mean, this is still a heavily honor-shame world. Mm-hmm. And the acts of Joab and Shammai, and I mean, they, they treasonously worked against the king at some point. And so um, the, even in America, treason is a, a death sentence. And so um, in, in a sort of honor-shame culture, that certainly would have played out as well. And also Solomon's a teenager, like he is That's young at taking me. the throne. And so um, some of his decision-making also may not reflect a whole lot of maturity either. Yeah. But let's jump ahead uh, in time in terms of writing, not in terms of uh, narrative and going to First Chronicles. Yeah. And just a reminder, uh, this book is written to people kind of returning to Israel, trying to form themselves again as a nation, rebuilding the city, um, trying to reunite the people, having this sort of optimistic perspective. And so, um, yeah. So we focus a lot on the building of the temple here because that's that's what the people who are returning from exile are looking to do. And so that's how the author is uniting them. Yep. And so we get a lot more details here. And David, who has been told by God he cannot build the temple himself, uh, basically does everything else he could possibly do, which is get all the supplies together, even even having a blueprint, even starting enlisting labor. Uh, and so he, he takes any resident alien, basically any foreigner who has converted to Judaism, um, and, and uses them to start building this temple. Yeah. We, Chris and I were talking about it. We're a little up in the air about if that's acceptable. Yeah, it, it's a little tricky um, about what you do with foreigners who have converted to Judaism. So it's not a collection of people that you have captured from war that uh, that um, you, you're probably allowed to enslave. It's not people indebted necessarily. So yeah, I, I'm not sold that what David did here was probably legal within the confines of the Torah. So, right. um, yeah, but Solomon gets charged to build it. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and there's a little bit, and, and I'll see this this week and next week when David starts talking about, um, commissioning Solomon in some ways, like David starts quoting what Nathan had said about his covenant, about the Davidic covenant, where he's going to sit on the throne forever and stuff like that. But David also kind of adds his own interpretation and perspective, I think, into the te- text where it's like, and his name shall be Solomon. It's like, well, Nathan never said that. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it's, and I don't think, I think David's making these interpretive decisions based upon what he knows, which he has heard from 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 David's son, this will happen. He doesn't have any idea that it would be hundreds of years in Bethlehem would be Jesus born, who would be this king. But um, there's definitely uh, some added perspective from David of exactly Solomon's going to be this guy who's going to do these amazing things. It's like, well, Nathan didn't exactly say that. So, so this may not exactly be the word of the Lord versus David's interpretation of what Nathan said. Yeah. And again, it's I'm just grateful that we can step back and see the fulfillment of all of this in Christ. It's so interesting to read it from the perspective of Solomon at the time. It's mm-hmm. interesting to read it from the perspective of the chronicler who's writing it hundreds of years later. And then now we are reading it and interpreting it through the lens of Christ and him as a true king and Messiah. Yep. But it does finish with kind of simple instruction, follow the mm-hmm. law and it will go well for you, which yeah. is great. But spoiler alert, Solomon doesn't exactly do that. Right. Uh, and so David starts organizing the priesthood. So if they're going to rebuild this temple, the tabernacle is going to become this massive building. Um, David's right. They're going to need some priests. That's their job is to upkeep this whole uh, deal. And so um, 
it's there's such a question to me of like what have the Levites been doing for a couple hundred years uh, from the end of Joshua on out, but um, that they're they're around. Uh, there's thirty eight thousand men and the rest of their families, and so um, there seems to have been some priests working throughout that history and various little high places or or altars throughout the country, and so uh, they seem to have some job. But now they're being conscripted kind of back into the the labor related to the temple. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting to like, as you're reading this, you're probably thinking back to Exodus and Leviticus, or as you read David's instructions to Solomon, you're probably thinking of Joshua. And I think the author was intentional there and to cause everyone to reflect back to the beginning in those glory days of Israel first being established. And now we see it being established again at the hand of Solomon and how God's going to work. Yeah. And with so many priests, particularly from Aaron's descendants, it's like, well, we need a division of labor. And so they all get kind of conscripted to these 24 divisions, Mm -hmm. working 48 weeks. So uh, if you remember back to the beginning of Matthew uh, with uh, John John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, um, he's there doing this work. And so it it has some origin back to David. Yeah. Two uh, weeks a year. Well, David and Solomon. And David, who loves his music, decides he needs some musicians too, which is great. I'm glad we have music. We have a big book in the Bible about it. All right. And so let's jump to the New Testament uh, where we're still in Corinth. Mm-hmm. And uh, Paul breaks into this analogy with the body. I'll include a link, a link uh, to, to these um, all these pieces that they have found throughout multiple temples in Corinth uh, where um, the body was a big deal. Asclepius had his whole temple who's like the god of uh, – if you've ever seen the medical logo with the two snakes on the thing, that's that's Asclepius's logo. Um, and so medicine, the body, it was a big deal there. And so uh, I think Paul – rightfully uses a a healthy analogy for them to go like, like you guys are obsessed with the body. So let's talk about the body. And, and he uses it as an analogy to go like, like, you know how hands and feet and all these things work, but like they all need each other. Like mm-hmm. they're all part of the larger body and they're unique and they have different roles and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but they are part of something greater. And one can't say, Oh, I'm the, I'm the most important thing ever. Like they're all part of the larger unit that makes up what a body is and so it's kind of an interesting connection i'm just having this thought right now as you're talking is this idea of how we're all part of the body but paul tells us in the beginning of corinthians that we have the mind of christ so what if this is like the mind and the heart belong to the lord they're the lords and we are the parts that are operating through that power and direction yeah yeah it's definitely, um, and uh, I loved how Peterson kind of rephrased a part of the section here. He says, "The way God designed our bodies is a model to understanding our lives together as a church. Every part, depending on every other part, and parts we mention, and the parts we don't, and the parts we see, and the parts we don't. And if one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt and the healing. And if one part flourishes, every other part enters into the exuberance. And uh, I think that's great. I think it's I think it's exactly kind of the direction that Paul's after to talk about the the unity of the church and and even the way we suffer together and the way we. Mm-hmm. celebrate together all those things are so important yeah and it's really I mean it was one of the root struggles for the Corinthians is unity and and maybe again we're not struggling with taking people to court um, or you know different sexual relationships within families but we also as the church struggle with unity and the heart and the central 
component of what Paul is saying here is that the power for us to live according to God's design comes with when we as the body are united to Christ altogether. And one mark of this is that, yeah, we suffer with those who grieve and we rejoice with those who are honored. And I think the other part, the other mark of that is us using our gifts to build up and encourage the church, not for our own satisfaction, but for the to meet the needs and serve others, which we'll talk more about in a little bit. But it's a reminder to you who are reading and to me that I live for the betterment of the whole body, not just myself. And I live to see that others are satisfied and served, not just myself. Yeah. And, and this is a culture that's already tribal and communal. And so, and Paul still needs to encourage them to uh, remember the, the communal aspect of what it means to be a part of, of, of the body of Christ. And so we who are, generally radically more individualistic than anything would have anybody would have had an idea about in the first century. Um, I mean, this is important teaching for us to understand our, our um, not symbiotic, but our necessary relationship uh, to the body of Christ. And yeah. so, um, but in, in sort of that, that brokenness that, that the Corinthians are dealing with, Paul, Paul reminds them, all right, let me teach you the most important way mm-hmm. or the better way. Uh, and he starts talking about this, idea of love. Um, and, and he, he calls them out right away, uh, in, in the city of Corinth with all the pagan temples, one of the common practices is sort of a banging and clanging of things to, to try to get the God's attention. And so, um, they would do this throughout their worship services. It's, it's kind of, if you've been to a Muslim country, like the call to worship, you'd hear it all over town. And so to them, he's, he's pointing out, he's like, look, if you, if you're talking in tongues and stuff like that all the time, but you don't have love in your heart, you're just like the pagans just making a bunch of noise out there. Um, and Paul hits on a pretty wide spot to, to condemn in some ways right at the beginning where it's like, look, if you practice the charis- some of these charismatic gifts, but you don't have love, th- then it's nothing. Or if you even teach soundly and have great faith and have not love, you don't have anything. If you practice gener- or sacrifice and generosity, but there's no love there, it's not worth it. Like it's not, it's not the point. You're, you're kind of wasting your time. That love is the essential. And, and I think it hits on something that John will say in one of his letters. Like he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Like love towards others is a pretty essential part of, of our faith to begin with because of the person that we base our faith around, which is where I think Paul starts going. Yeah. And I, you know, so this idea of love, we've got one word for love in English, which is love. And then the Greek has multiple words. um, But this one is specifically around agape love. And agape is considered to be kind of the highest form of love. And usually when we are speaking of the love of God, we talk about agape love. But agape is known not through uh, its feeling, but by its actions. And so when we say agape love here, it's talking about not what you say, but how it's played out. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's the idea of putting others needs, wants, like all those things above your own. It's it's a, a sacrificial version of love towards another. Right. That is not seeking anything in return. Yeah. And and Paul starts personifying it. And it's always like, it's always like, love does not insist on its own way. Love does not boast. Like those are personal actions. And so Paul starts personifying it. And I think it's meant to start pushing us back towards Jesus to say like, look, like love was a person. Now there's these characteristics about love, but love was a person too. And that's Jesus. And so, um, yeah, he's trying to deal with their 
struggle to emphasize gifts more than others and putting themselves higher on a pedestal. He's like, look, like at the end of the day, if love's the driving deal here, like all of that would go away. And he's, and he starts speaking of where he's like, look, when I was a child, like, yes, like these are the things that, that I would have done. I would have overemphasized spiritual gifts. I would have done these things that were divisive, but now, now that I'm mature. Like I've learned not to do those things. Like and, and, and especially at the expense of love. And I've learned to kind of prioritize things in, in that maturity. Mm-hmm. And so, and they list faith, hope, and love. Yeah, I like how this ends. And um, it says the greatest of these is love. Again, agape. But one of the reasons is think about this. Like when we are in heaven, we will no longer be required to show faith because we will see everything fully. Yep. We will no longer need to hope in what's to come because it will have arrived. But the thing that will endure all the way into eternity is our love. Love will never end. And that's encouraging. And just stop for a moment and ask God to put his love in you. Ask him for the grace to live out agape love because it's, it's just hard. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is Holy spirit driven, empowered uh, version of how to live out your faith. And yeah. so, um, and it's hard with those you love much less those you don't know or care about right. or those you dislike. Yeah. But I, I have a hard time even showing agape love to those I love the most. Yeah. Let alone loving your enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Or just even somebody who I like kind of feel nothing about, you right. know, maybe I don't know them. Yeah. And so, um, but Paul, after sort of taking that pause to remind people of the most important sort of unifying factor in the midst of all of their brokenness around, um, probably elevating certain gifts and thinking of their own gifts as more important. He still stops and, and clarifies, particularly around these two gifts, um, as if these might be things that the church in Corinth seems to have a, a definite struggle with uh, around mm-hmm. prophecy and tongues. And so, um, yeah, in prophecy, uh, it's we're probably not going to spend time trying to get into all the definitions and the historical roots of the Old Testament prophecy into New Testament prophecy. Um, but at least from this chapter, we know it's some form of revelation from verse 30 and that it's spoken to the people for the building up encouragement and consolation. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's, that's, that's the essential thing. That's what prophecy in a New Testament setting looks like. It's some form of a revelation that's there for the building up of the church. And, um, and so uh, we should at least function with that definition from the context here. Um, as we get into uh, prophecy and, and, and tongues and, and Paul kind of makes the argument going, look, prophecy, like everyone can understand it. It's for the building up of the church. It has a corporate use in tongues. At the end of the day is really for the edification of, of the person speaking those tongues, which is fine. But in a corporate setting, we, we kind of really need one and not the other and, um, starts leaning towards prophecy more than he does tongues, at least in corporate gathering. Yeah. And so again, I think the lesson for us is to focus not on exactly how to practice prophecy or tongues, though that's important, but strive to excel in building up the church, you guys. Think, what can I do to build up the church? And not just this building, but these people that you are part of. So most of us are not in a church where people are distracting the service by speaking in tongues. It can't be interpreted. But the heart of this message can still apply to us when we consider what we can do to serve and build up, to edify, encourage, and bless the community of believers. We need one another to hold fast when things get hard or when um, teachings come in that may distract us from what really matters. Yeah. And Paul does provide some order. He's like, look, this should be one at a time. If you're in tongues, there should be an interpreter. It should be for edification. If you're 
doing prophecy, it should be one at a time. For should be once again for encouragement, um, and those should be tested. There should be people that speak and weigh in on those things. And then he makes this comment about women, which I think is still tied into what he's saying about testing yeah. and judging. He's like, look, we need people to speak around these things, but uh, if if elders particularly are uh, around the the sort of um, doctrinal protection of the church, which we'll eventually unpack that when we get to First Timothy, um, but. Um, if if some of that's the case, then um, these women might be speaking out of turn in their culture. Uh, they might be speaking out of turn in light of elders and what their role might be. Uh, it's a little bit vague and sometimes coming down of exactly here's what was happening in Corinth. Therefore, this is the teaching that's very clear for all churches. Uh, it's really hard to make a theology here around those kind of things. Um, but there does seem to be, um, I think, instruction around the women because we already know women could prophesy and pray in the church because that's already been instructed in this letter. Uh, but there's something going on here that the women are either speaking out of turn or speaking where elders should be speaking or something along those lines uh, that Paul's ultimately being like, look, like, there, there's some disorder happening. There's some disunifying practice that's happening. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm instructing you to help curb that in Corinth. Yeah. So to kind of like summarize and restate that, women are permitted to speak in church because Paul addresses it even in other parts of 1 Corinthians. And second of all, if we are driven with agape love to serve one another and build up the church, we will find great joy in living out the design and order that God has given us. You are not being restricted or withheld, but being invited into living into your God, God ordered design. Yeah, yeah. Imago Day is what I want to say. I, yeah. Anyway, you got it. Um, so prophecy, yes. Tongues, maybe with an interpreter. <laughs> that's that's sort of the drive of of. But tongues in private, teaching. for sure. Yeah. And uh, and then Paul sort of makes a pretty quick turn. He sort of, it feels like a culmination of like, all right, I've dealt with so many of your things. Now, let me let me finish in some ways where we started. Let me, let's bring it back to who Jesus was and what he did. And I love it. Paul's sort of like, I know you guys are already saved. Like, I'm pretty certain of that. But let me remind you again of the gospel, um, which any of us goes past, present, future, which you received, by which you stand and are being saved. And, and it's mm. kind of a continuous idea and will be saved. And, and so um, I think that's so such a beautiful picture of like dealing with your past, living in in the present and the thing that will save you in the end. And so um and, and and this is where um to to my more liberal christian friends who really emphasize the 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 sort of life lived out of jesus of his actions and how he cared for the poor and all this kind of stuff and hear me i'm for all those things i think jesus gives us a picture of what it looks like to be the perfect human at the same time when paul sort of writes his letter and goes okay let me stop and let me make sure I summarize. This is the good news. Not that we have a great example in Jesus. What, what the most important thing is that he wants these people in Corinth to know was that Jesus died for their sins and that he was resurrected on the third day. Like that mm-hmm. is the most essential thing that Paul feels like anyone can say about Jesus. And so um, this is the good news that Jesus' death is for your sins. And so, um, yeah, great it's great that we have the, the model of what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen and the way that Jesus lives out the perfect humanity. Awesome. But the good news itself is that Jesus died for your sins. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. I think this is just my favorite chapter in first Corinthians. And I think part of it is that it's built up to here, but 
the fact that Paul affirms the salvation of this church that is such a wild mess is really encouraging, first of all. But the biggest thing is that he brings it back to what really, really matters. And it's easy for us to get lost and spend hours or weeks or years diving into things like tongues or prophecies or lawsuits. And and those aren't always wrong to study, but let's remember to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Christ crucified and raised from the dead for us. And so hold fast to what is true and make sure that before you can explain the accurate use of tongues, so again, that's important, that you can share the gospel and define the gospel and what truly brings about salvation. Yeah. And so um, Paul speaks about the historical parts of it, that there's other witnesses, um, and Paul refers himself as untimely born, um, which can be interpreted in a few different ways. I think he's actually talking about his apostleship here um, and probably things that he gets accused of, of being like, well, you were never there with, with with him. It's like, no, I wasn't. And you guys think I'm untimely born, but let me remind you, Jesus commissioned me um, and I'm working hard. I'm sent by Jesus. And although you think I'm not worthy, that I still deserve your respect as an apostle. And so, um, and, and, and he speaks of his own unworthiness. It's like, oh, I, I didn't deserve the grace of Jesus, but he still appointed me for this. And so um, I think he kind of deals with that and he'll deal with that again in the next letter as well. Yeah. So Proverbs 23, uh, this kind of feels like a whole lot of teaching about restraint, mm-hmm. about not eating too much food and being so gluttonous, not having so much money and wanting, desiring all those things, not drinking too much, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think Proverbs, again, it's just so easy to read through and kind of skim over, but really stop and reflect. When it says, don't toil to acquire wealth, We read that and we're like, sure, that's good. But do we really believe it? Do we really live that way? Uh, Don't desire things of the wealthy. I mean, that's hard for me. It's convicting for me. Uh, But ultimately, don't indulge in anything other than than Christ, other than the word, what's true of God and what's eternal for us. And and we should always remember these wisdom teachings are principles um, and and can be applied in more than one way. So when it talks about... Uh, disciplining your children with a rod, like the the principle being taught there is that children do need discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, they can go astray or do stuff that's dangerous for them, whatever it may be. Um, now, is that straight up instruction that therefore your discipline has to be a spanking or it has to be a, a switch a from the front yard rod. or a belt or a rod? Yeah, I, I don't I don't think so. And and I think it's more the teaching of make sure you discipline your children um, versus here's the method of disciplining them. And so, um, don't, don't, don't make a giant theological case. I don't think you should be able to make a giant theological case of here's how the church has to practice disciplining. And therefore this is how a Christian family has to do it. Um, yeah, I I think, I don't think we should apply Proverbs that way. Yeah. You know, and I think going along with that, uh, that passage about you spare the rod, spoil the child. I know that's not the actual verse, but, um, is probably one of the most misunderstood or misinterpreted passages yeah. in scripture because we do, we believe it's a promise instead of a principle. And so then if you are a Christian and you parent your kids well and they grow up and they walk away from the faith, then you feel abandoned and betrayed by God. But keep in mind that these are instructions. They're not promises that if you do this, this will happen, but they're instructions as a better way to live your life before the Lord. And so make sure you're reading genre really in the right way so that you don't end up putting some sort of requirement on God that he's that's not been promised. Yep. All right. Next week. All right. Old Testament. Um, 
pay attention to Solomon's wisdom and pay attention to how he showed, he displayed it through caring for the weak and the vulnerable. I think it's really interesting. Um, And in the New Testament, I just found it super fascinating to compare Paul dealing with the Galatians versus dealing with the Corinthians and what their core struggles and problems were. How does he treat them both? What does he say about them? And what issues are they dealing with? They're pretty different. Yeah, very different. Um, yeah, so this week, uh, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do what I did for this week, uh, so for next week. Uh, so as David quotes, so we'll get David to his commissioning of Solomon again. Just pull up for Samuel 7 when Nathan does his promise of the Davidic kingdom, the, 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 the covenant of David. See what God really said. See where David makes some changes. See where David adds some stuff in. So um, it's just a, a helpful to be like, okay, like, David kind of quotes Nathan, but he also kind of makes some changes as he quotes him. And so um, just compare those two. And then, um, yeah, we, we'll finish off the rest of chapter 15, which is just the biggest chapter, I think, uh, that Paul writes on death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does Paul use the analogy that he will use? And what do you think he's trying to emphasize for these Corinthians believers that maybe you've read about in, in sort of their struggles to understand things in this book? What is he trying to, to drive them to? Um, I think it's a good question. So, all right, that's it for this week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.